do me a favor. We need to do a bit of an exercise together. I say this with some trepidation. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. There is the presumption that you will actually open them at the end of this exercise and not fall asleep. Everybody good with that? All right. Close your eyes for a moment. You have traveled from the United States to Poland. In Poland, you are going to take a tour and see the remains of the Nazi extermination system. You climb aboard your tour bus to see a young man who, uh, probably a college student, is trying to pay his way with his official tour guide's uniform on and his name badge. You take your seat. The bus commences to drive. And the bus pulls in front of what your tour guide announces is Auschwitz. Your tour guide begins to tell you some things, and he means well. But they sound like facts that were memorized from a book. They sound like distant memories far removed from the present day. Now, I want you to, in, your same, uh, in the same sense of imagination, imagine once more that you have traveled with your family to Poland to see what remains of the Nazi extermination system. And as you approach the tour bus, you see an old man, a man whose uniform, frankly, fits a bit disheveled upon his body, a man whose eyes appear to see you but also gaze past you, a man who struggles to utter words. And as the tour bus moves towards this dreadful place, he says, this is Auschwitz. And instead of telling you stories of things that were read out of a book, he instead tells you the stories that he experienced the horrors that he saw, the sheer madness of it. In telling these stories, you are listening to his report, but no longer as merely a consumer or a tour guide, but for that moment you feel drawn in with him. Why study Ecclesiastes? Some have argued, much like they did about James in the New Testament canon, why the book of Ecclesiastes fits in the Bible at all. And so this morning, I want to invite you to hear the words of the narrator as he begins to introduce the words of the preacher. In order for that to make sense, let's turn to Ecclesiastes 1. And read the first 11 verses. We will stand together because this is the very word of God given to us this day. 
words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, or absurdity of absurdities, says the preacher. Absurdity of absurdities. All is absurd. What does it gain man by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, where the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where, it, where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It, is all, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Help us, O oh God, we pray, and to see ourselves and to see the world around us see it as it really is, the one who has sought all wisdom and pleasure and found. This is not like any other book in the Bible, but Father, it's given to us because we need to hear it. And so we need your spirit to come and dwell richly among us, to open our ears so that we can hear, our eyes that we may see, and our hearts so that we can understand. Even in the midst of this book, our desire is that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus and him only, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Be seated. So, I want to give you, over the course of this sermon this morning, an introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes and lay before you the invitation that the book offers us. That's really the essence of my outline, an introduction to the book, and it does need some introduction, and to explore the invitation that this book offers all of us. Now, in introducing this book, there's several things that we need to talk about. The first one would be, who wrote it? Because you'll notice right away, the author never identifies himself. He says some things that can give us some guesses, but we don't know. What's the structure of the book? How does it all fit together? Well, that we need to talk about as well. Ecclesiastes is unlike any other book in the Bible. You'll soon see why. 
But when you think about who wrote it, we don't really know for sure. Now, there's two voices that you need to hear in this book. I'm going to call one of the voices the narrator, and I'm going to call the other voice the preacher. All right? Now, the first 11 verses that we read this morning are the voice of the narrator. The narrator, the one who has collected the wisdom of the preacher, the one who has uh, brought all of these words and uh, proverbs together. This narrator is, a, is an academic, a scholar, a philosopher. But it's not his voice that he wants you to hear. He wants you to hear the preacher's voice. And so at verse 12, where we will begin next week, he hands the microphone over to the preacher, to the teacher, and lets him have his say. And that say goes from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to chapter 12, verse 7. It's only then, in chapter 12, verse 8, that the narrator picks the microphone back up again to give some concluding or final remarks. Now, who's the one that the narrator is passing the microphone to? Well, you've noticed that I keep calling him the preacher. Some might say he's the teacher. The name he ascribes for himself is a Hebrew word, koheleth. It occurs nowhere else. That word occurs nowhere else in literature and nowhere else in the Bible except in the book of Ecclesiastes. Even if you wanted to define what the word means, we can't. It's a mashup of a Hebrew participle, a Hebrew verb, some other uh, nouns and things going on. It's a pseudonym. The author wants to remain anonymous. Now, there is some speculation in the life of the church that Solomon, King Solomon, wrote Ecclesiastes. And it's possible, but it's not for sure. And so, for us to understand the message of the book, we really don't have to parse whether it was Solomon that wrote it, or someone pretending to be Solomon, it's not important. Really, it's not. Because at the end of the day, the wisdom is still there. And it's important for us to hear it. So I'm going to use teacher or preacher interchangeably throughout our series, because I feel like that's the most comfortable place for me to land, is to say the teacher or the preacher. But if I say he's a preacher, if I say he's a preacher, that introduces some problems too. Especially for those of us that want sermons to have happy endings and conclusions. Or maybe just a point. He never comes out and identifies himself. And no king, by the way, has ever called himself Koheleth. We don't see that in any of the accompanying literature either. 
So we really don't need to know so much as the identity of the preacher or the teacher, but his intentions and what are his intentions. What are the intentions of this preacher? This book is wisdom literature. But I need to go ahead and tell you this now. It's not pithy sayings that... um, that monogram well. They only go well on a coffee cup if it's Monday morning. (laughs) Absurdity, it's all absurdity. If you're not a morning person, that's funnier. If you are a morning person, I don't understand you, but bless you. It's an unsettling book. It's an unresolving book book. And all this is true, but it fits as wisdom literature, but not the type of wisdom that's dispensed from, from libraries or books or philosophy. It's not wisdom that fits cleanly or neatly uh, in, in, or in a tidy way into boxes. It's the wisdom of a drifter, as Zach Eswine says, on the side of the street shouting at you. Zach says, the preacher sounds like a crazed man who smells like he hasn't bathed and looks like it too. And as we pass by, he won't stop glaring at us and telling us that our lives are built on illusions and that we're all going to die. Because let's be clear, when you see those guys on the street, to cross over to the other side and walk a little quicker. You see, we're not used to listening to that type of wisdom. We're not used to hearing people that sound like that. We're not used to giving regard to people that look like that. Because this isn't an approach to wisdom that we're familiar with. We're not comfortable with it. And frankly, we'd rather not engage it. We like wisdom that comes in neatly packaged nuggets, like a fortune cookie or a Snapple lid from a Snapple jar. Or like in our book of Proverbs. See, Ecclesiastes wants to make sure that we don't get too comfortable living life by formulas. The reality is that Ecclesiastes wants to deal with the exceptions of life. Now, How many of you remember studying geometry in school? How many of you are studying geometry right now in school? Fantastic. Those of you that study geometry in school are are familiar with the fact that um, there are 180 degrees in the three angles of a triangle, right? There are 360 degrees in a circle, And two parallel lines will never, ever intersect. That's because all of you have been schooled in what's called Euclidean geometry. Euclidean geometry states theorems and principles and absolutes. But then there's non-Euclidean geometry. The type of geometry that says, but is there 180 degrees in a triangle? And those parallel lines on some plane will eventually intersect. You see, you and I 
Um, we like to live life by its rules. Or if, if the geometry, if that was a bit too nerdy, and let's face it, it was a really nerdy illustration. I have a friend of mine who's um, uh, the church planter that we're supporting uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, he and I didn't talk about this or plan this prior, but he's also preaching Ecclesiastes right now. And so we kind of found this out like, you too? And it was weird. And we had a kind of guy moment there. It's fine. Anyway, um, so we were, we were talking about like preparing for this particular sermon. And I shared with him my Euclidean geometry uh, illustration. He said, that's really nerdy. You shouldn't use that. I didn't listen. Um, let's switch it up then. Let's go to grammar, okay? Let's do grammar instead, right? Spelling, spelling, it's fine, it's spelling. When you're in school and learning how to spell words that have multiple vowels like I and E, what's the rule that you learn? I before E, okay? And then, that will start finishing for me. Karen, so you take the test, you're very excited because you have mastered I before E, and then your teacher says, except after C or when sounding like A as in neighbor and way, you go, wait, what now? There's a graphic I'll put in the program uh, at some point in a few other weeks of all the different ways that the exceptions can form a sentence. It fits on a coffee mug, by the way, it's fantastic. One of the reasons that learning English grammar and Greek grammar and Hebrew grammar is so difficult for me is because I hate learning the exceptions because I barely mastered the rules. Irregular verbs, participles, infinitives. Just when you think you've begun to limp along with the rules, the teacher tells you that it does not always work according to the rule you've just learned. And what's more, look, when I say preacher and you hear sermon, aside from just wanting, to, wanting it to make a point, we, we want it to just to have a happy ending, right? It's like our TV shows and our movies. We want a nice, satisfying ending at our time, uh, as the time comes to the close of us watching it. We want our preachers to wrap up sermons with neat and tidy conclusions. But Ecclesiastes wants us to linger a little longer in the discontinuity of life. I translated the word that is here, vanity. Some translations would say it's meaningless. Some translations will say it's vapor, but I rather like absurdity. Absurdity. If you want me to, I'll give you a quick summation, a quick paraphrase of the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes that we just read. Do you want to hear a quick summary? Of course you do. Thanks, Tom. This is what the preacher is saying. At the end of the day, life is frustratingly absurd. 
the cycles of nature are screaming that message to you. You live. You exert a lot of energy, but nothing new happens. Just like the sun, wind, and rivers, then you die. Oh, and one other thing. After you die, you're quickly forgotten. Cheery, right? I remember there was uh, in my I probably I know I know I've said this story before, but I'll say it again. There was a Sunday that I was um, leading worship at my church in Georgia, and I was I I was still in seminary. I was newly on staff, and I'm playing piano and trying to sing and run over and preach a sermon and come back and play piano some more and whatever. And, and I had chosen some slower songs um, because it's easier to play and sing at the same time if I'm not having to, you know, fly all over the keyboard. And I got an email Monday morning, you know, one of those. Oh, pastor, I'm so glad you're here. Some of us were just wondering what happened to our morning worship celebration? It felt more like a dirge. When we come on Sunday morning, we want to be uplifted. And the, it took everything. I still have the teeth marks here where I bit to not reply, send, send again. Um, But I just wanted to say, my dear sister, my dear sister, do you not understand that the celebration that we have in Jesus is an already and a not yet, and that this world is filled with things that I don't want to celebrate that sometimes we don't come to church to forget our troubles and our cares, but to come and to hear the voice of Jesus who cared so much about us that he took on flesh in order to identify with our cares and identify with our struggles and indeed even suffer under the injustices of our world. We look at verse 2 where the narrator quotes the preacher Here's how one commentator paraphrases it. He says, everything is absolutely, and I mean absolutely, absurd. Life itself, the teacher says, is an affront to reason. So how do we, how do we grapple with this? This preacher, this, this teacher isn't going to give us the tools to grapple with it. FYI. Just if, you're, if you're looking for like, okay, in week three, the answer guide comes, I'm sorry. It doesn't. In Proverbs, a good man plus God's love and wisdom equals a good life. In Ecclesiastes, a good man plus God's love still dies like a beast. 
Listen to what Zach Eswine says. He says this. He says, For those who are accustomed to sermons that purpose to get us saved or that are filled with phrases such as God says or the Bible says, Ecclesiastes is a strange book. If we are accustomed to hearing sermons given by preachers who speak formally rather than personally, in churches that see asking questions as a lack of faith, among Christians who see reading poetry, stories, and riddles as a waste of time, with a mindset that believers are not to be in the secular world, this book in the Bible can baffle, flabbergast, and even infuriate us. This preacher is no old school evangelist, as Wine says, from the American South or the Midwest. His kind of relationship with God and neighbor is older still. His approach is new to many of us, not because his way of doing ministry is newfangled, but because it is so old and wise as to be forgotten. Why did I start the sermon? with the exercise of envisioning you in Poland hearing about Auschwitz first from a tour guide that has come about his knowledge from books and pamphlets, and then secondly from a tour guide who has come about his knowledge because he's lived in it. Because, dear friends, what the preacher has to report to us are the words of his investigative journalism. What he has discovered and learned and sought to understand here in this world. And friends, it is because of that that I want us to consider the invitation as to why we ought to study this book. To hear its words. I want to summarize what um, Dr. Peter Kreeft lays out as to why Ecclesiastes is such an important book. He says that Ecclesiastes is the one book in the Bible that modern man needs the most to read, for Ecclesiastes is lesson one, and that the rest of the Bible is lesson two. He says that we don't heed lesson two because we have not first heeded lesson one. He writes, whenever I teach the Bible as a whole, I always begin with Ecclesiastes. He said, in another age, we could begin with God's beginning in Genesis. But in this age, the age of man, we must begin where our patient is. We must begin with Ecclesiastes. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we, we who follow in the way of Jesus, who have something holy other than our neighbors, also have something deeply in common with our neighbors. Here's the thing. 
And I need you to understand this. The message of Ecclesiastes is not for those poor, unchurched, unsaved people. It is for all of us. Through 10 again. Let these words hit you. All things, the narrator says, are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear feel filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. With DNA testing and the internet, tracking down your family tree can be a neat hobby. Ancestry.com can unfold some really cool things. How many of you know intimate details about your great-grandparent beyond their name? I saw two and a half hands. And I bet if I went back one more generation from that, it's probably just a name on a shipping map. Because the reality of it is, our moment that we have in this life and in this world right now, so pregnant and full of its possibilities and hopes and frustrations and fears, are here and then gone. And a new generation comes. The preacher doesn't come to us as a polished expert. The preacher comes to us as the one who has experienced this world in all of its misery and maddening absurdity and speaks with the weariness of a traveler who has seen much and grown wise because of it. Beloved, the preacher invites us to learn lesson one. the common humanity that we share with everyone. And friends, listen, I would submit to you in the day of modernity in which we live, we need this now more than ever. We need to recover a commonness with our neighbor, with our world, because there are forces around us at play that would rather cause us to put on team jerseys and meet at center court to duke it out. And I've said this before, I know, but I'll say it again. You can't love your neighbor if you spend all of your time talking about how your neighbor infuriates you. 
as long as you fill your mind with how wrong the other is and how infuriating the other is and how they're destroying the world, you can't love them. Because you've convinced yourself that if they'd go away, it'd actually be a better place to live. And so the invitation for us is to, is to see our commonness with everyone because this story is our story. It's our neighbor's story. It's everyone's story. And in that essence, the preacher is an evangelist. He is coming and it's, it's an evangelistic message that is slow. It's a slow build, but it's an invitation to see something that we have in common with everyone. Christians can still honestly struggle with the question of finding our meaning and finding our purpose and finding who we are. Ecclesiastes steps in and finds a deep resonance with modern man and his questions. Because modern man, the greatest fear of modern man is not a fear of death. Nor is it a fear of sin and guilt or hell. Those were in the Middle Ages. Do you know what modern man's greatest fear is? Meaninglessness. Absurdity. Nothingness. As one author put it, we live in a society that knows more and more about less and less. It knows more about the little things and less about the big things. So I want to talk about um, our reflexes for just a minute because there's going to be some um, knee-jerk reactions that we're going to be tempted to do. Um, The first one is not to soften the message of the book. Now, it's new. It's shiny. There's a picture of a giraffe on the front of the program. Very exciting. There's going to be a temptation, however, um, as the novelty of our study wears and the journey continues to shortcut the process. What do I mean by that? There are several ways we can try and shortcut the process. Here's one of them. The first way we can try and shortcut the process is to say that the implications of the message of the book of Ecclesiastes are not specifically for you and I. In other words, we say that um, it is for someone else to hear. It's someone else's life story. This would be a great sermon series for so-and-so to hear. This would be foolish, I feel. To not find your life in the reflection of the preacher's words is to triumphantly say that you don't need wisdom's voice because you have it all mastered. Don't do that. Here's the second thing um, that we have to resist doing. And that is, we have to resist the temptation to soften out the sharp peaks and deep valleys of the book. Okay? And the way that we try and do that is say, oh, but Jesus came. And so all those peaks and valleys go away. That would be a problem. Here's why. Because we want neat and tidy, 
We want sitcom sermons and satisfying endings where everything ties up at the end, the hero wins, and everyone is good. But the preacher won't let us go there, and we shouldn't try to. Again, this is where Zach Eswine is helpful. The book of Ecclesiastes intentionally requires us to enter into discomfort. Now, I'll stop there. For some of you, your life is already uncomfortable. And you want to come to a place where you're going to be more comfortable, not less comfortable. problem is we actually have to get to the root of the infection. You have to get to the root of why is life uncomfortable to begin with and treat it there. You actually have to enter into the discomfort. Have any of you ever had an ingrown toenail before? They're awful. I inherited a a physiology of feet from my father where my toes turn a certain way. And so ingrown toenails have been part of my life. Do you know what's more painful than an ingrown toenail? Trying to get it out. Do you know what happens if it doesn't get out? It gets a lot worse. And that's the invitation to Ecclesiastes. Actually go in. Go into the peaks when he takes you to peaks and go into the valleys when he takes you into the valleys. It requires us to enter into discomfort. Eswan goes on. He says, the main point is not found until the end of the book. As a reader, you will have to start off with meaninglessness and absurdity and wade through 12 chapters of tension, poetry, proverbs, unanswered questions, unsettling speech, and intimate language before arriving at the point he wants to make. Here's the third and final thing I want you to hear. The third and final temptation is to try and correct the theology of Ecclesiastes. Let me give you a a quick pithy saying that I'm going to come back to over and over over the course of our series. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is not incorrect. It is, in fact, instructive. It is simply incomplete. The The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is not incorrect. It is instructive. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is simply incomplete. I'll show you how I know this, and then we'll go to the Lord's Supper, and we'll ask him for some help. If you go to the end of the book, over in chapter 12, where the the narrator takes the microphone back, I want you to notice something. The narrator doesn't dismiss the preacher He doesn't try to correct his words. He doesn't say, well, that was awkward, wasn't it? Look at what he says. Look at verse 9 through 13. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads 
and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much, uh, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. The narrator doesn't seek to dismiss or correct or dismantle or chide the wisdom of the preacher that he has so painstakingly assembled. But the wisdom is incomplete. And here's how the wisdom is incomplete. The wisdom is incomplete because the preacher is correct. There is nothing new under the sun. Everything that has been will continue to be. Everything will just keep happening except one thing. What the narrator didn't know and what the preacher could not see is that one new thing would happen under the sun. God would take on flesh. God would break in. God would rescue his people. So dear friends, that's it. That's the invitation. The invitation is to come and to hear God's wisdom from God's word and master lesson one so that as we turn to the rest of the scriptures, we may find the scriptures and ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ mastering us more richly, profoundly, and deeply than we have ever experienced. God gave us these words. They're fit words. They're just not the final word. Jesus gets the final word.